Welcome to Soul Food, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. Soul Food, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. Welcome back to our study in the book of 1 Kings. Can you turn me down a little bit? Thank you. As we pick back up from last week, suddenly Solomon the brilliant politician whose years of wheeling and dealing had resulted in more peace treaties than heaven has little Debbie cakes, was finding the going considerably tougher. We saw that adversaries were rising up from both from inside and outside the administration, and they were rising up by the very hand of God. Last Sunday, we saw that while most English translations use the word adversary to describe these enemies, the original language allows for the word Satan. Literally, God was raising up Satans to oppose the man to whom he once said back in chapter 3, Solomon, ask me for whatever you want and I will give it to you. The reality here is stunning. God has gone from letting Solomon take his pick from a vast smorgasbord of blessings to sending a trio of Satans to make his life miserable. But it is not God who has changed. No, it was Solomon. From day one, God made it clear that his blessings depended upon Solomon's faithfulness. Remember when the Lord said to Solomon, I will give you a wise and an understanding heart as no one else has ever had or ever will have. And I'll also give you what you did not ask for, riches and fame. No other king in all the world will be compared to you. All that makes Solomon's ending all the more sadder. Look at verse 29 with me. And it came about at that time when Jeroboam went out of Jerusalem that the prophet Ahijah the Shilonite found him on the road. Now Ahijah had clothed himself with a new cloak, and both of them were alone in the field. Then Ahijah took hold of the new cloak which was on him and tore it into twelve pieces. And he said to Jeroboam, Take for yourself ten pieces, for this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Behold, 
I'm going to tear the kingdom away from the hand of Solomon and give you ten tribes. But he shall have one tribe for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, the city which I have chosen from all the tribes of Israel. Because they have abandoned me and have worshipped Astrith, the goddess of the Sidonians, Chemosh, the god of Moab, and Milcom, the god of the sons of Ammon. And they have not walked in my ways, doing what is right in my sight and keeping my statutes and my ordinances as his father David did. Nevertheless, I will not take the whole kingdom out of his hand, but I will make him ruler all the days of his life for the sake of my servant David, whom I chose, who kept my commandments and my statutes. But I will take the kingdom from his son's hand and give it to you, that is, ten tribes. But to his son I will give one tribe, so that my servant David may always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem, the city where I have chosen for myself to put my name. However, I will take you, and you shall reign over all that you desire, and you shall be king over Israel. At this point, God intervened directly by the means of a prophet from Shiloh named Ahijah. He was the first of the prophets who would become such significant figures throughout the history of the kings. His encounter with Jeroboam was staged for the greatest impact. As Jeroboam was in the countryside away from Jerusalem, Ahijah suddenly met him wearing a new cloak. He dramatically removed it, tore it into 12 pieces, and then gave 10 of those to Jeroboam. The tearing of the cloak was reminiscent of the encounter between Saul and Samuel in 1 Samuel 15. When Samuel used a torn robe to inform Saul that the Lord had torn the kingdom of Israel from you and has given it to one of your neighbors, one who is better than you. Can you imagine if something like that happened to you? Now, last week we saw that Jeroboam had success written all over him. He was an energetic worker and a natural leader. So maybe he was heading north out of Jerusalem for the weekend when Ahijah, the prophet from Shiloh, made a point to bump into him for a word in private. Now, prophets can be curious characters. And if Jeroboam expected the unusual, he was certainly not disappointed. Ahijah was sporting a new cloak. And no sooner than they were out of sight that he whips it off and then tears it into shreds. Jeroboam couldn't figure out what Ahijah was counting. Apparently, the number of pieces he was tearing up was important. Ahijah stops at 12, holds him out to Jeroboam with a brusque order, you take 10. Well, now it's Jeroboam's turn to count. The explanation follows. Here's what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. See, I'm going to tear the kingdom from the hand of Solomon, and I will give you ten tribes. And think about it. If Ahijah had no verbal declaration with his visible action, what would Jeroboam make of it? Did it mean that the fabric industry was headed for ruin? Was Ahijah wanting Miss Jeroboam to make his wife a quilt? So the explanatory word about the torn kingdom keeps the prophetic action from being just a mystifying charade. Verse 38, please. Then it shall be that if you listen to all that I command you, 
and walk in my ways and do what is right in my sight by keeping my statutes and my commandments as my servant David did, then I will be with you and build you an enduring house as I built for David and I will give Israel to you. So I will oppress the descendants of David for this, but not always. But please look at verse 38 where the Lord says, Then it shall be that if you listen to all that I command you and walk in my ways and do what is right in my sight by keeping my statutes and my commandments as my servant David did, then I will be with you and build for you an enduring house as I built for David and I will give Israel to you. You see it in the passage we just read and it is the word if. Psychologists tell us that our brains tend to mispredict what will actually bring us happiness. We assume that if we achieve certain things in life, we will find happiness. Things like, I'll be happy if I get admitted into the right school. I'll be happy if I find the right spouse. I'll be happy if I get rid of that spouse. I'll be happy if I make vice president. I'll be happy if I have my dream house. But this perspective cannot be supported because each time our brain experiences a success, it moves the goalpost of what success really looks like. For instance, if you got good grades, you need to get better grades. If you have a good job, you need to get a better job. If you hit your sales target, now you have to raise your sales target. If you buy a home, now you need to have a larger home. The word if may not be the longest word in the Bible, but a strong case can be made that it's the biggest in terms of importance. It appears in Scripture almost 2,000 times. And many of those times it sits there on the page, making sure that we don't forget that so much of what happens to us in life is our responsibility. Here are some examples from the scripture. If the godly give in to the wicked, it's like polluting a fountain or muddying a spring. Proverbs 25, 26. If you ignore criticism, you will end in poverty and disgrace. But if you accept correction, you will be honored. Proverbs 13, 18. My child, never forget the things I've taught you. Store the commands in your heart. If you do this, you will live many years and your life will be satisfying. Proverbs 3, 1. If you keep yourself pure, you will be a special utensil for honorable use. Your life will be clean and you will be ready for the master to use you for every good work. 2 Timothy 2.21 Time and time again, the Bible writers dropped that word if into the text so that we would never forget how important our actions and our choices are. If you keep yourself pure, if you remain faithful, if you obey, if, if, if. In the end, it all comes down to that one little word, or rather that one gigantic word. It did for Solomon, and it will for you and me also. Verse 40, please. 
Solomon sought therefore to put Jeroboam to death, but Jeroboam set out and fled to Egypt to Shishak, king of Egypt, and he was in Egypt until the death of Solomon. Now the rest of the acts of Solomon and whatever he did in his wisdom, are they not written in the book of the acts of Solomon? So the time that Solomon reigned in Jerusalem over all Israel was 40 years. Then Solomon laid down with his fathers and was buried in the city of his father David, and his son Rehoboam reigned in his place. Earlier we were told back in verse 26 that Jeroboam son of Nebat rebelled against the king. We are nowhere told what form that rebellion took. But now we are told that Solomon tried to kill Jeroboam. So Jeroboam obviously represented a significant threat to the king. And realizing his peril, Jeroboam fled to Shishak, king of Egypt, and stayed there until Solomon's death. Once again, I want us to see that although Solomon tried to make them his ally, Egypt was once again the refuge for Solomon's enemies. Honey, the world is not our friend. At least it shouldn't be. James 4.4 reminds us, You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? Therefore, whoever wants to be a friend of the world makes themselves an enemy of God. This verse also tells us that Solomon reigned for 40 years and was succeeded by his fool of a son, Rehoboam. We see that Solomon reigned as many years as David his father had reigned. However, while David left a unified kingdom, the kingdom of Solomon will soon be divided. I suggest both are the predictable result of the state of their hearts. David's heart was singularly God's, while Solomon's heart was divided between the God of his father and the manifold gods of the world. Now, like his father David, Solomon too had a weakness for women, but when Solomon sinned, he didn't have David's sincere heart and broken spirit of repentance. The grandeur of the kingdom and not the glory of the Lord was what mostly motivated Solomon's life. And because of that, he left behind the temple of God, his royal palace, a nation in bondage, an economy in trouble, as well as the books of Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Solomon. The nation was united during his reign, but there was a hairline split in the nation that eventually is going to reveal itself in open rebellion and division. Solomon's hunger for wealth and achievement put a heavy financial burden on the nation, and after his death, we're going to see that the people are going to revolt. i got to tell you, that's surprising to me, as Solomon's reign up to this point had seemed so enduring. But... He had put his glory before the glory of the Lord. And soon his kingdom is only going to be a shadow of its former self. Like King Saul, Solomon was handed great opportunities, but he didn't make the most of them. 
in the same way. When we compromise the integrity of our relationship with God, we set in motion a course of events that destroys what we value and can incur the judgment of God. Verse 43 says, And then Solomon laid down with his fathers. This is hardly a surprise. Of course, eventually Solomon would have to die. No matter how wise and good he had been, he was going to die. Even if he had not failed in his old age, he would have died. The wonder of Solomon's reign had to come to an end simply because Solomon had to die. But now, one greater than Solomon has come. Romans 6, 9 says, We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Why? Because death no longer has any dominion over him. Forgive me for how my mind works, but I... I wonder what Solomon would have to say about his own life. If he could magically appear before us this morning, what insights, explanations, or excuses would he offer? Now, in the case of Solomon, we know, for Solomon lived long enough to give us the book of Ecclesiastes, which many scholars believe were written during the last four or five years of his life. Now, if you've ever read Ecclesiastes, you know that the tone of the entire book is very bleak. Words like vanity, meaningless, folly, and foolish are sprinkled all throughout the text. Though it does appear to me that Solomon had finally come to his senses at the end of his life. But... You can't escape the feeling that the seduction of his soul had taken a terrible toll and that he was significantly reduced in ways that age alone could not accomplish. For instance, in Ecclesiastes 7.29, reflecting on his life and experience, Solomon said this, But I did find this. God created people to be virtuous, but they have each turned to follow their own downward path. I'm intrigued by those last ten words. They have each turned to follow their own downward path. Now, we all sin in different ways, of course. But is it true that we each have our own downward path? That is to say, a specially designed path that leads away from God, one that has been meticulously tailored by Satan to fit all of our unique needs, fears, longings, and weaknesses. And if so, what hope do we have of resisting that path? If Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, was seduced by his downward path, can we even hope to avoid ours? Well, I believe the answers are yes and yes. Yes, we all have our downward paths. And yes, we can't avoid them. The Apostle John said, The spirit who lives in you is greater than the spirit who lives in the world. 
Who is the spirit that lives in the world? He's the designer, the paver, and the the maintainer of your own downward path. But John also says that if you are a Christian, he is inferior, even impotent, compared to the spirit of God that lives within you. If you don't get nothing else this morning, get this part. Sometimes we need to whack Satan with a four-by-four. I don't mean a wooden board. I mean 1 John 4.4 that I just quoted that reads, You are from God, little children. You have overcome because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. It makes me sad that Solomon was to do so thoroughly that he so willingly followed his downward path. And you can tell from the book of Ecclesiastes that, that it made him sad also. But just because he did doesn't mean that we have to. My prayer is we will be fully awake and fully determined to move upward on our path. The Bible tells us the story of Solomon's tragedy so that we can avoid making the same mistakes that he made. The choices of sin are always tragic, and we are tempted to make them every single day. But if we are wise, we will let the Holy Spirit use Solomon's example to teach us our own need for God's saving grace and the Spirit's sanctifying power. We should always consider the sinful choices that we are making in life. Well, like what? I don't know, it it could be many things. Like the growing resentment over a personal disagreement. Or perhaps a a little compromise with sexual sin. Maybe we are tempted to use angry words or to pursue foolish pleasures. But the question we must ask ourselves this morning is, where will those sins lead in the end? What tragic consequences could result? And not only that, there is also the reality of the final judgment that we have to consider. We are all going to stand before God to be judged for everything that we have ever done. So all the righteous judgments that we see in the Bible, including what Solomon had suffered from the hands of Hadad and Rezon, are intended to remind us of the last of all the judgments. When Jesus Christ is going to come again to open and shut the gates of heaven and hell. It gives me no pleasure to say that Solomon's life ended in a tragedy. But even sadder than that, my friends... All of his wounds were self-inflicted. His unwillingness to keep a pure heart before God, along with his refusal to discipline his appetites, led him to commit sins that would have been unimaginable back in chapter 3. The great temple builder had become a pathetic idol worshiper, bowing down before the very idols he had contracted someone to build. And as far as I can tell, the only way that Solomon could sustain his moral lifestyle was he had to shrink his view of who God was. 
You see, immorality always partners with idolatry. So Solomon not only invented a God who would tolerate his behavior, he also bowed down before the fraudulent creations of his human imagination. He turned his back on the one true God to grovel before false gods. What a tragic ending for a king who had began so well. But that such a king and such a kingdom as we have seen in the previous pages should fail so utterly and completely. And the scale of that failure will be seen in the following chapters. All this is a most devastating demonstration that the fundamental failure of humanity will not be redeemed unless by a far greater than King Solomon. So I hope that we're all appalled at what happened to Solomon in his old age. I hope that we are troubled by the fact that the heart of Solomon's terrible failure as God's king is also at the heart of our failure as human beings. Now, of course, the outward expression of our failure may be different, but at the heart, it's all the same. I also hope we will now look at Jesus Christ and see this wonder, and it is this. He did not fail as we have failed. His wholehearted devotion and faithfulness to God his Father never faltered, not even once. His human life was a success by the only measure that finally matters. He is the King and the Savior that us failures need. Philippians 2.8 puts it like this, And being found in appearance of a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason, God has also highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue one day is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So as we finish up the sermon and the life of Solomon, people often wonder what happened to Solomon in the end. Did he ever repent of those sins? Will we see him in heaven? Was he saved? This is always the most important question for anyone. Nothing is more important than where we're going to end up in eternity, whether in heaven or hell. And a person may commit many harmful sins, as Solomon did, yet still end up in heaven by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. We can say that all is well for the soul that ends well. Now, personally, I think we have good reasons to believe that Solomon was saved. Now, one reason to be hopeful is that God had promised David that although his son would be disciplined, he would never be forsaken. This is 2 Samuel 7:14. God speaking. It says, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rods of man. That's what we've all been seeing in chapter 11. With the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. 
Not only that, if the book of Ecclesiastes is any indication, the king learned from his mistakes and came back into a right relationship with God. Furthermore, based on what we know from the Gospels, Jesus regarded Solomon as having a vital place in the history of salvation. One can almost imagine Solomon singing George Beverly Shea's famous hymn as a confession of his own faith. Can't you hear Solomon singing this? I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather be his than have riches untold. I'd rather have Jesus than houses or lands. I'd rather be led by his nail-pierced hands than to be the king of a vast domain or be held in sin's dread sway. I'd rather have Jesus than anything that the world affords today. But whether Solomon was saved or not, we can be absolutely sure of our salvation. Even after all of our wrong affections, even after all those times our hearts have wandered away from the God we love, if we have been truly regenerated, our salvation stands secure. That is because we are not saved by our own love for God, but rather we are saved by His love for us in Christ. That is the good news of the gospel. The way we get to heaven is not by loving God enough to make Him want to let us in, but by Jesus loving us enough to die on the cross. Jesus Christ is the greater than Solomon of our salvation, whose heart never once turned away from God, but kept on loving him to the very end, and was going to keep on loving us until we get to glory, and then eternally. I'm leaving with you this morning that God has mercy for us even after all the foolish and tragic choices we have made and all the wrong affections that have led us away from him. If we are wise, we will repent from the heart for all the wrong things we have done. This morning, we can ask the Holy Spirit to write some new chapters in the story of our lives. Better chapters than 1 Kings chapter 11. By the love of Jesus and the grace of God, and the power of His Spirit, our story can turn out better than we ever imagined. Father, do your work in our hearts. Only you know where everyone in this room is. Only you know those who will see this online. You are our only chance. There is no plan B with salvation. I pray you would draw us to you, Lord. Let us see our need for you in whatever ways that we need to do that. Open up our eyes and fill us with your spirit. We ask in Christ's name, amen.